Hey, my friend, welcome along to the Nutrition Nuggets podcast, helping you get clarity on nutrition. I'm your host, Dale Pinnock, Sunday Times bestselling author, nutritionist, and creator of the Culinary Medicine College. Every episode here in the podcast, we dig deep on the subject of nutrition to give you clarity, to give you answers, and to expand your knowledge. Hey, my friends, how you doing? I hope you guys are well and you're staying safe and you're staying sane in all this madness. I mean, I'm starting to climb the walls a little bit at this stage, but you know, we soldier on regardless. Now, my guest on this episode is a good friend of mine I've wanted to get on here for ages. He's probably one of the most gifted and eloquent voices for public health and is a man that's never really afraid to put his head above the parapet in order to get information in the public domain. It is my pleasure to welcome cardiologist and outspoken dietary medicine advocate, Dr. Asim Alhotra. How are you doing, mate? Hi, Dale. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, I've wanted to get you on for quite a long time. You've been a bit of a busy boy recently, haven't you? Well, just carrying on with the, you know, my advocacy work, Dale, I think, with this whole issue of COVID-19, um, as we'll talk about, you know, I think that it's a really good time to re-emphasize the uh, message of having yeah, the importance of diet, really, in terms of health and even in terms of immune resilience, if that's the right description for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, there, there is so much that we could speak about, but I think that's a good starting point. I guess that's something that's going to be relevant for so many of the, li- the listeners. There's all this discussion recently around COVID-19 and obesity and your your articles and, and the interviews that you've been given recently have really kind of brought this into the into the public understanding that people that are obese but then also people that seem to have multiple markers of poor metabolic health tend to be not only the most at risk but most at risk of more severe outcomes can you kind of do a bit of a deep dive on that for us yeah mate so um initially actually i was um you know before covid19 hit our shores i was looking at data from china and italy and what was became very clear and apparent is that, the, first of all, in Wuhan, uh, and this was from a publication in the U- New England Journal of Medicine, 60% of those who suffered the worst complications, and the average age was about 60, 61, um, had type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. If you look at Italy, although it's an older population, of course, age is, a, is probably the biggest and most important risk factor for mortality. Um, you know, most of those people, in fact, only less than 1% of people in Italy that died um, you know, had no underlying so, so-called health conditions. Mm. And when you look at the data, looking back in terms of uh, obesity and previous flu pandemics, excess body fat, you know, in essence, but more specifically obesity, it was really um, determined to be an independent risk factor for death. But more important than all of that, uh, Dale, as we've discussed before, is that most of these underlying conditions uh, relate to what we call the metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And when you look at metabolic syndrome, and of course, these are multifactorial, um, the biggest risk factor is poor diet. You know, there are other things that are very important, such as stress and sleep and and being sedentary. Of course, we're not going to deny that. But in terms mm. of the hierarchy of what's really driving these these conditions, um, it is poor diet. And, you know, in my own clinical experience, um, and obviously I wrote a book about it, but this isn't about the book. This is just about what the science is telling us. And in my own clinical experience, what the published literature tells us is that you can improve, potentially reverse many of these conditions, especially type 2 diabetes, within a few weeks and certainly within a few months of just specifically 
improving diet quality. So I think that message was something that I wanted to convey and get out there. And of course, it came through, mm-hmm. you know, obviously different channels and, and different angles. Uh, one of them, which also, I, you know, as an observation, I noticed and wrote about in European Scientist a few weeks ago was the fact that our prime minister obviously, you know, seemed to be more sick compared to his cabinet colleagues who yes. are a lot slimmer. And, you know, of course, it's an observation. Um, but it was, it seemed to fit with the evidence already that people with obesity and, and his BMI certainly from 2018, from, from what we know, from what he said in terms of his weight and height was about 35, which puts him well into the obese category, mm. um, seemed to be, you know, uh, appeared to be a clear risk factor there. So that really kind of, I think that got into the mainstream through an article I wrote in the Telegraph newspaper. Um, just trying to also give the broader perspective, Dale, is that, you know, our healthcare system, um, was already overstretched and overwhelmed because we haven't really tackled obesity and diet-related disease. And now COVID-19 seems to be exploiting those people with diet-related disease even further. You know, So more of a reason to get this discussion back into the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so what are the what are the driving factors there? I know it's it's a immune dysfunction that is associated with obesity. I mean, I know sometimes there's uh, variations in cytokine expression with people that are overweight. There's like adverse cell numbers; they can either be too high or too low in in different obese populations. What is it that seems to be the driver there? Well, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. So I think you know to to simplify it for the listeners really there is an immune dysregulation in people mm. with obesity and also type 2 diabetes you know high blood glucose glucose is a problem that's been something we've known about in medicine for a very long time people who have high blood glucose for example who come to hospital have worse outcomes and we've seen the same thing happening here with COVID-19 obesity um, probably multi- multifactorial but excess body fat does do two things one is it um, you know contributes to chronic inflammatory state mild damage mm-hmm. if you like over a long period of time from having you know significantly excess body fat uh, and that when when COVID-19 and a virus hits you then you're more likely to have more severe complications you're more likely to shed the virus for longer so all of these things um, you know has come from flu data uh, but it, you know it, you know, as it's also a respiratory virus with flu, you know, there are many similarities very likely with COVID-19, although it is, it does appear to be um, more deadly, certainly in older populations from the data we have considerably more so. So I think that's probably the explanation behind it. And then, of course, what ultimately kills people uh, in a tragic, you know, tragic minority of people uh, who get COVID-19 is the ARDS, the Acute Respiratory yeah. Distress Syndrome, which really is the immune system, if you like, overreacting and and, and damaging one's own lungs. And It's um, that acute initial res- um, immune response, isn't it? That um, inflammatory stage in the first stages of infection doesn't know when to switch off. Is that right? Absolutely. And, that, and that's what really kills people there. So I think that's really, you know, the understanding that we have uh, in relation to mm-hmm. the sort of pathophysiology, the pathophysiology, the biology of what's going on. Uh, but then it, this seems to also apply to all these other conditions of the metabolic syndrome and probably useful for people listening to understand that because it's not something, yeah. by the way, that's commonly discussed in consultations with doctors. It's not something that's part of mainstream conversation. But you and I know, Dale, that metabolic syndrome and chronic metabolic disease is the major issue. And the reason it is, I say it's that, the biggest burden a, on our health system. Absolutely. Even from a cardiology perspective, you know, two thirds of people admitted with a heart attack have metabolic syndrome. And uh, what I wrote about in European Scientist and, and re-emphasized again in the Telegraph was that 
data from the United States where they do have similar but higher you know, prevalence of obesity and type 2 diabetes than we do, um, reveals only one in 12 people are metabolically healthy. And there are five parameters of optimal metabolic health. Interestingly, mm. um, metabolic health is defined as having less than two um, abnormalities. So it's not perfect, um, you know, even then. But, you know, the, the, the people that have less than two of these factors, uh, abnormalities are considered metabolically healthy. So ideal uh, metabolic health is having a, a blood pressure of less than 120 over 80, systolic and diastolic. Having mm -hmm. a waist circumference if you're a man of less than 102 centimeters and less than 88 centimeters if you're a woman. Having blood triglycerides of less than 1.7 millimoles per liter. Mm -hmm. uh, and having a HDL good cholesterol of greater than 1 millimole per liter. And um, not being uh, pre-diabetic. So in other words, having a HbA1c of less than 5.7%. If you have all of these, obviously that's optimal metabolic health. Less yeah. than two puts you in the category of still being metabolically healthy. But only one in 12 or less than one in 12 people in the US um, in terms of adults are metabolically healthy, which is really quite a shocking statistic. So there's a big issue and big problem here that we need to we need to really, um, uh, you know, get on top of. And we haven't been doing for the last, you know, 10, 20 years. And oh, this no, is really where worse, I started my campaigning and my advocacy work is that until we really get on top of this, which is being driven predominantly from lifestyle and, and, and diet being the main risk factor, um, then we're not going to sort our healthcare systems out. And if and when another pandemic occurs, um, we, we're going to have the same issues, same problems with lockdown, same stress on the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, in, in the kind of modern environment that, that we've got, taking diet out of the equation for a minute, I mean, I'm going to come back to that um, in a few minutes, but how plausible is it that we can be in this perfect metabolic health with the sheer amount of stress that we're faced with. You know, our, our modern way of living is really quite far detracted from how we're supposed to be living from an evolution point of view. You know, as far as our, our biology is concerned, we, we're kind of just a few offshoots of early man, really. But the, the kind of pace of modern life has put burdens upon our physiology way beyond what we've evolved to be able to handle so how how plausible is it to to be in that good state of metabolic health and i guess part of that question as well is how difficult or how easy is it to get towards a state of better metabolic health so i think from an individual perspective dale and this is something i you know um i follow my own advice uh but not you know more important than that is is um the results i see with my patients individual mm -hmm. patients both in the NHS and privately, and from all socioeconomic backgrounds, so this isn't something that just applies to people who can afford healthier food, is that these people can reverse their metabolic syndrome within a few weeks. So this is you know, clear um, uh, clinical experience of mine. It does reflect the published literature that's there. It's limited, but it's there. Um, mm. Certainly with type 2 diabetes, we know that people can send their condition into remission within a couple of months. Um, up to 50% of people, which is quite a, a large amount uh, of just from just from changing diet. So uh, that's the first thing to say. So it's it's very doable. But what yeah. you've alluded to, which I, I I completely agree with, is that the biggest driver behind our behaviour and how we live, what we eat, how much stress we have, how much activity we do, how much sleep we get, is really environmentally driven. Mm -hmm. And we have this ultra-processed food environment, as you know. Um, you know, these sorts of foods have become unavoidable. 
but yeah, a very fast paced life certainly don't help. Um, and I think we need to really have a think as a society and governments and policymakers need to think about how we change that so that we have a healthier population. Um, and in fact, an unhealthy population is also an economically unproductive one. So it's a, you know, it's sure. a win-win if we get the population healthier. And and I'm not, uh, you know, I, it's not something I've looked into in, into great depth, but there is some information and data out there that suggests, for example, on this note, what you're discussing is that, you know, once you get beyond 36 hours of work a week, you're no more productive. So, you know, in, in if I was just thinking aloud and I had a magic wand, certainly I would say, why don't we, you know, why don't we have a, a three day weekend? Why don't we think about the way we work? How, why don't we change the way we work so that we've got more time for ourselves, for, um, you know, more relaxation, doing, you know, more social connection in a, in a good way so that we, we ultimately improve our overall health, but then also don't lose out in terms of what's happening from an economic perspective in terms of people's jobs, you know, better living standards, all those sorts of things need to be need to be discussed because again i think we shouldn't ignore the fact that social deprivation is also still a big risk factor and has a, appeared to be a big risk, risk factor for death from covid19 i think the mm. plausible biological mechanism is the same sort of stuff that we've discussed already what well, we so so f- food choices stress levels all of these things are absolutely sort of disrupting metabolic health you know yeah. and, and dale we're all interlinked you know we this has proven that we we all are dependent on each other in terms of yes. in terms of the way we live so it's our duty even to ourselves to look after the people around us and our communities yeah 100% 100% okay so i just want to move on to a slightly different different tack and this is something we spoke about the other day um i i i saw a post that you put up that talked about the state of food in hospitals and this is something that i've really experienced firsthand but then also there was a little bit of a a spat on twitter wasn't there about uh the whole donut gate thing and some of the healthcare staff were not necessarily receptive to the the underlying message that you were trying to to portray i mean you know this isn't about getting into judgment wars or anything but could you talk about those concerns that you had and you know what what drove that passion and what made you want to speak out because this you know i i was completely and utterly behind what you were what you were trying to say it wasn't about pointing fingers it was about a much bigger picture yeah i'm glad you've raised that dale so um for people who aren't aware uh there was a what actually ultimately you know in fact drove a, drove a new story caused a lot of um polarized views on twitter is that i reacted to a tweet from uh, a hospital trust in London who were essentially congratulating, promoting, endorsing Krispy Kreme donuts for giving 1,500 free donuts to NHS staff. Now, the context of my to my reaction was essentially saying this was disgraceful, um, given the fact that we have a big problem with obesity and there's a huge issue of obesity and, and people being overweight within the National Health Service. I'll come on to that a bit later. And this was really sending out the wrong message. And uh, I, I basically, um, you know, uh, I, I pointed a, um, you know, a finger at that trust saying this is really not acceptable. This isn't right. This isn't good. It's a disgrace, essentially. Mm. And um, a bit of context of that before we go into a bit more detail is that, you know, for many years, I started off my campaign many years ago. Um, really to try and improve the state of the hospital food and the hospital food environment. Yes. Because 
if we are going to tackle the obesity epidemic, my personal view isn't just my personal view. You know, it's actually the view of that's now been established amongst the whole of the medical profession, actually, in terms of the hierarchy of doctors, um, is that we should stop selling junk food in hospital because mm-hmm. data reveals that it legitimizes its consumption. And, um, you know, even patients that go to hospitals where they're serving this sort of food, it makes it more acceptable. And there's, there's very good data on that. So I thought, well, if we really want to tackle this obesity epidemic, we need to kind of take a look in the mirror and start in our own backyards and make sure that the hospital food environment is the healthiest it can be. And the reality is it isn't. 75% of food purchased in hospitals is unhealthy. And um, more than, you know, just over 50% of NHS employees are overweight or obese. More mm. specifically, the data suggests that one in four nurses are actually obese. And this isn't about finger pointing because we know the real issue is the food environment that's driving all of this and the same yeah. as what happens on the high street. So in you know 2012, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, I was part of a, an obesity steering group that essentially was doctor's prescription. You know, the organization that essentially represents every doctor in the UK came out with a 10 point plan of what policy changes need to be done to tackle the obesity epidemic. And six out of those 10 concentrate in the food environment. And one of those was to make sure that there was compulsory, you know, that we need good food, food in hospitals, essentially, and get rid of junk food. It mm. was then backed up by a motion that got passed in the British Medical Association Island Conference 2013. I proposed this motion and with an overwhelming majority, having made the case, writing an article, an evidence based case in the British Medical Journal, um, the majority of doctors also said we need to ban the sale of junk food in hospitals. Further down the line, Dale, I then thought, okay, well, hospitals and the doctors and medical profession have pretty much said, yes, we agree with the evidence that this this is really important. But then translating that into practice meant that hospital chief executives would have to sever contracts where they essentially are selling this sort of stuff on the premises, but also contracts which are quite shocking, people may find quite alarming, is that there were contracts with certain companies where things like sugary drinks, crisps and chocolates had to even been delivered to bed bound patients, you know? So, and, and, and when you go on ward rounds and you talk to patients who are drinking these sugary drinks and you say, you know, uh, why are you having this? Well, they, they say, well, the whole on the, the, the hospital serving it to me. So they have this impression that it's absolutely fine to have this stuff and it's not detrimental to their health more importantly. So all of that was ongoing. And then I uh, collaborated with, uh, and spoke to Simon Stevens, chief executive of NHS England, who I know quite well. He was mm-hmm. fully on board. And, and I wrote a paper with um, his, uh, one of his research fellows in NHS England with his endorsement called NHS a Healthy Eating, pu- published in the Postgraduate Medical Journal, to again make the case and to say, well, you know, so essentially we've got the British Medical Association, the Medical Royal Colleges, NHS England, who over a number of years have said, yes, we should not be selling junk food in hospitals. Interestingly, Dale, as well, we know that better staff health is also associated with better performance. So there's, there's all of these factors playing into it. So when this was tweeted by a trust, not an individual, it was actually the tweet from the hospital trust, you know, um, and and basically saying, and their argument or their perspective or some of these people's perspective is that this is boosting morale at a time when the NHS is under a lot of stress. And of course, mm-hmm. frontline staff are under a lot of stress because of COVID-19. This was a, you know, a goodwill gesture from Krispy Kreme. But the reality, as you and I know, is that Krispy Kreme, you know, these companies, they're using it as a, it's a marketing platform. For them. Of it's course. It's a marketing stunt. You know, it's enhancing their brand, associating with NHS staff. Um, and, and this is something very typical that happened with big tobacco many years ago in the 30s yeah. and 40s. There were concerns being raised about cigarettes and their adverse effect on health when most of the population, interestingly, in a very similar way, were like we're consuming ultra processed foods, were smoking then. 
And what tobacco did was, in the 1950s, is to try and combat this, is they got doctors, people may find this quite shocking, you can go online and look this up, Yeah, doctors were advertising cigarettes. So, you know, um, they would actually be endorsing, promoting through adverts. Um, I remember you know, one of the, it was Camel, wasn't it? Like eight out of 10 doctors smoke Camel cigarettes. Absolutely. So this is all, and, yeah. and, and of course, you know, to be fair to those people who were um, challenging me, and some cases, unfortunately, quite malicious tweets against what I was saying, um, and misinformed tweets as well, saying that I was yeah. fat shaming and pointing, which I did, did none of that. This is unfortunately this is the emotional response of a lot of people who are probably uh, addicted to these sorts of foods. But I think yeah. to be fair to them, it's lack of knowledge, Dale. I mean, I've been in this game for quite a many uh, a long time, you know, as you know. Uh, and know of all these tricks and tactics of the, of the food yep. industry, and ultimately, it's detrimental to the health of the staff. We want our staff to be optimal, you know, optimal health right now. Um, and although on the surface it may feel like a goodwill gesture, it's just a cynical marketing ploy, and of course, just contributes to this whole issue of legitimizing junk food again, consumption of it. And I said as well as you know, one cigarette won't kill you, neither will one donut. But what we need to do is, is shift the balance away from this becoming normalized to something as becoming an occasional treat. And of course, hospitals should not be associated, in my view, with these products. So this is really the stance I was making. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, on that note, Dale, what many people, again, wouldn't realize and, and probably wouldn't know, many members of the public, is that there is really a, a huge lack of knowledge about nutrition amongst medical professionals. And that's because yes, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, yeah, not part of our training. Uh, the majority of junior doctors in a recent study published in the BMJ Nutrition Journal um, did not feel that they had the knowledge, time, nor confidence to even have mm-hmm. discussions about basic nutrition with patients. So that's something that needs to also be highlighted. So if people are trying to understand what's going on in all of this, a lot of the reason for the backlash from certain sections of very influential doctors is basic lack of knowledge. Yeah, oh, I agree. I mean, when I when I was doing my uh, masters at Surrey, I would say ninety percent of the other students on that course were GPs or gastroenterologists, and having this conversation with them is exactly like you said. It's like they felt that they just had no idea of what to, what kind of discussions to have with their patients. They could clearly see every day in their practices that lifestyle was behind. 98% of what was being presented to them they were day in day out they were seeing patients that were di- that were diabetic that had cardiovascular disease that had like that that usual metabolic health picture that that is is so grim in this country but they didn't you know they realized that the drugs weren't necessarily winning the war but they didn't know what to put in place so they obviously you know they're 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 the few that were able to actually take the steps to to kind of go and study it and to to get knowledge independently but how is this not a fundamental part of medical school well i think it you know it's um it should be and I think things are changing and there are medical schools. I think Bristol is one where they've started to introduce um, nutrition training as part of the curriculum. But it's not widespread. It's a very small minority. It's certainly not something I learned in medical school, uh, Dale. And mm. I think because of the, you know, the rapid increasing burden of chronic disease being driven by diet, um, you know, has outpaced medical training, if you like. But certainly, yeah. you know, uh, you and I were co-signatories on a letter, if you remember, a couple of years yes, ago, we wrote to the Medical Schools Council. We copied it to Jeremy Hunt, the Secretary of State for Health at the time, and the General Medical Council, and said that we want, you know, lifestyle education needs to be compulsory part of both undergraduate and postgraduate training. You know, up to date, mm-hmm. doctors have to constantly keep learning. 
um, and we got a very positive response. But it doesn't seem to have been translated into clinical practice yet. And some of it is also ignorance about the fact of the contribution of diet. So as you know, there's still this issue of healthy weight. Um, it's all about how many calories you consume. Um, and therefore, it does, there's no such thing as uh, unhealthy foods on un, only unhealthy diets. All of that kind of stuff also plays in. And unfortunately, a lot of that misinformation comes from um, from the food industry and scientists funded by them. So we've got so we, there's also that battle oh, going yes. on there where we're having to try and um, you know push the message about healthy eating, uh, and you've got the you know the food industry hitting back, um, uh, uh, you know either through marketing, but often, unfortunately, through um, industry-funded scientists that aren't, you know, making it that apparent that they're getting funded by these companies, who in many in many ways is an intellectual bias. They probably genuinely, I think, believe what they're saying, um, but it's just exacerbated by the fact there's a big financial interest. The institutions are funded by companies that market and make profit out of selling junk food to people. So th- it is a bit of a mess that needs re- resolving um, I think the, un- the low-hanging fruit, however, amongst mo- most of the public health nutrition community uh, and amongst the, you know the people, the sort of the influencers in the top of the medical profession, mm-hmm. is that if we all focused on junk food, I think that we would probably that's a low-hanging fruit in terms of trying to reduce its consumption and introducing policies to reduce its consumption. Um, and I think you know the latest evidence does suggest that ultra-processed food. In particular, I think would be um, a good place to start. More than fifty percent of the British diet is ultra-processed food. What mm. I tell my patients is, you know, it comes out of a packet, has five or more ingredients. Usually, it's full of sugar, starch, unhealthy oils, additives, and preservatives. Don't yeah. eat it or make it a very minimal part of your diet. But unfortunately, it's more than fifty percent of the diet. And I think if we introduce policies to target ultra-processed food, then we'd see improvements in population health very quickly. And those policies, you know, really. Um, are similar, uh, should be similar in, in how we tackle tobacco, which was really addressing the availability, the affordability, and the yeah. I mean, it's quite an interesting thing considering, obviously, uh, the day that we're recording this is VE Day, and seeing some of the the photographs from the first ever VE Day seventy five years ago, and you look at, uh, and I know this, uh, this is this could be a junk comparison or not, I don't know, but you look at the general frame of people obviously they've gone through a wartime and there's been rationing and things like that but you didn't see these patterns of obesity but then even like you know even in like the 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 70s and the early 80s we weren't seeing these patterns of obesity you look at you look back at what the general population looked like then there wasn't that that kind of real permeation of the ultra processed food of the junk food to the degree that there is now so just an observation <laughs> no no be. i think it's a very relevant observation um dale and i think you know some of these issues are quite complex for the general public and yeah. one of the reasons as well that i you know highlighted that you know it's interesting it wasn't obviously that deliberate but i knew that people would resonate with the prime minister and it was quite clear that you know there was an issue there with him getting more sick and of course it may be yeah. multifactorial he's obviously very stressed he may not be getting sleep but you know the weight was a clear obvious um factor there in my view, observing it. And, and and people have gone with it, you know, in the sense that they can relate to that. So, you know, part of our job in this advocacy work as well is trying to, um, you know, use, trying to, we, we're having to use very complex information at times and trying to simplify it for the general public. So yes. one of the things I wrote about in uh, the European Scientist, how I finished it is that, you know, we've it's been very powerful and effective, this message in terms of lockdown of, 
you know, uh, stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. I've said, in addition, what we should be saying is eat real food, protect the NHS and save lives. Yes. Okay. Well, that's that's a really good good note to actually get to my final question. I know that you've not got a great deal of time. I mean, you're in demand at the minute with so much going on. So, I should imagine that listening to everything that we've just discussed, there's going to be a lot of listeners that are going to want to take meaningful steps to improve their metabolic health. Be it as this is such a you know a huge risk factor for not only chronic disease, but then obviously you know the big the big subject at the moment, COVID nineteen infection. What would be your key messages that would make the most difference to people? Like you know, what could they start doing today that could potentially turn the tide? Well, I think the first thing to do is um, really cut out the sugar and the ultra processed food. So yeah, you know, the, there's obviously debate going on about this, but. I would tell, you know, I tell my patients to see these foods almost as, you know, mildly addictive and they encourage overconsumption. So, you know, uh, you can tell people to eat less. You can't tell them to stop feeling hungry. Uh, and and patient preference for me, and I think, you know, I, I'm certainly an advocate for people trying to eat real food and healthy food as opposed to calorie restrict, which is another option, mm-hmm. of course. But in, in, in my, you know, my experience, patient preferences they would rather try and follow a dietary pattern that doesn't involve them having to restrict calories as such and just let the biology sort itself out so i would say you know cut out the ultra processed foods um, and on top of that really cut out the sugar and reduce the starch consumption so bread pasta rice and potatoes especially if you're overweight or you've got metabolic health issues certainly keep that to a minimum Um, ideally you know you want to cut that out completely if you can for for uh, several weeks um, and then certainly minimize their consumption so mm-hmm. that's what I would suggest people do from from that perspective. Of course, I think exercise is extremely important. So just moderate activity, getting a thirty minute brisk walk in a day, or cycling, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to do, um, I think is really good. In, in you know, in terms of there is some evidence that it does, um, you know, boost your natural killer cells, and and probably it does have some impact in terms of keeping your immune system optimized. Um, you know, and thinking about things about stress and sleep as well. So that's what I would be telling people to do right now. But I think one of the most important things we need to be doing. Um, from a diet perspective, uh, you know, uh, and, and helping people improve their metabolic health is really cutting out the ultra processed foods yeah. and, and eating, you know, a variety of, of, of whole fruits and vegetables, oily fish two to three times a week, nuts and seeds, um, you know, eggs, fish, full fat dairy, um, some, you know, unprocessed meat. You know, if you stick to those sorts of foods and cut out the junk, you're going to see big improvements in nice. your health and sense of well-being within a short space of time. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Right, before we, if we go, can you just tell us a little bit about the the book, The Pioppy Diet? I mean, I, I know it well, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, published in 2017, it was written with my co-author, Donald O'Neill, who's a former international athlete. And essentially, we produced a, a plan based upon one of the world's healthiest villages in southern Italy, where people age very well, they age well. And really, it's a dietary plan, a 21-day lifestyle plan, actually, rather than dietary plan, yeah. based upon the secrets of this village, but really advances a science on the Mediterranean diet, traditional Mediterranean diet, in terms of the components of the Mediterranean diet that are likely to be beneficial for health. And um, and and really, that's what it is. That, that's what it is. It was, you know, I'm, I'm obviously proud and pleased it became an international bestseller. I, yes. um, all, all proceeds from sales of the book, just to make it very clear to people, um, you know, go to charity. I, I'm not... Yeah. benefiting you know in terms of any extra sales of this book obviously it's done well i'm very pleased about it but it was written really to influence health policy 
Um, it was mentioned in British Parliament. Tom Watson, former deputy leader of the Labour Party, lost £100 following its principles. Yes. You know, um, so that for me was the key. Uh, I know you very kindly also, you know, gave an, an endorsement and message uh, in it, Dale, and, you know, the other people that included the chair of the Medical Royal Colleges, Andy Burnham, former Secretary for Health, because for me, it was about changing policy rather than just, you know, helping individuals, which, of course, it's done. I'm very pleased about yeah. that. But I'd rather it has an impact on on policy change so that we get the population healthier. Fantastic. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for your time. It's been fascinating. And uh, guys, make sure you check out Asim's work. Uh, get onto YouTube and see some incredible conversations and particularly in debates, this man shines. <laughs> Wonderful. Asim, thanks for your time and uh, speak to you soon. My pleasure, mate. Take care.